1: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath the author of Politico's Daily Brussels Playbook column. This week's episode features serial EU job filler Alexander Stubb, now Vice President at the European Investment Bank. He's held every national and EU post imaginable, except for European Commission or Council President. I ask him about that and the role the EIB has to play in the EU's next budget in our interview coming up next. Our podcast panel debates the meaning of the growing list of scandals hurting the NGO Oxfam, A recipient of more than 30 million euros of EU funds last year and even more from the UK government. We also discussed the Spitzenkandidat system for the 2019 European elections. Is it democracy in action, a missed opportunity or tragic deception? It's hard to know sometimes. And in our MEP of the Week section, Alva did some research on one of the members we blanked on last time. It turns out he's quite interesting, but for all the wrong reasons. First, I give you Alexander Stook. So today we're peeking behind the curtain of the European Investment Bank and the idea that the EU has to do more with less. And joining me on EU Confidential is Alexander Stoob, a man who has done just about every job related to national politics and the EU. And he is now in a very senior post at the EIB itself. So welcome to the podcast, Alex.
0: Thanks a lot. Nice to be here. Great.
2: Um, Now, tell us, firstly, we're hearing a lot about this idea that Europe is back. Is that true? And if it's true, why is it true? Yeah, I
0: definitely think it is back. I mean, if you look at the past 10 years, say from 2008 to 2018, it's been basically an escapade of different types of crises, going from the financial crisis to the euro crisis, sovereign debt crisis, to the asylum crisis, to the crisis of populism. And it hasn't really been a very good time. And usually you get these cycles of crisis every 10 years, but now we had many of them on top of each other. And now, again, you know, if you look at the political situation, it has calmed down. Uh, yes, there's still populist around. If you look at the economic situation, it's much better. We're actually growing faster than the United States. If you look at the euro, it's very stable. If you look at the drivers behind European integration, it looks to be uh, the Franco-German axis back. So, so in many ways, I do feel that Europe is back. And uh, obviously, as an EU nerd, I'm quite happy about that.
2: And this idea of Europe doing more with less, is that a simple concept of getting away from the system of just giving one euro for one euro funding grants and moving towards loans, or is it some kind of more complex mix of instruments that you're talking about?
0: It's actually complementary. So if you simplify things, you can divide the EU finances into two. One is grants or direct subsidies, you know, the traditional stuff from agricultural to regional funds and also research and development. And the other one are what we call financial instruments and budget guarantees. We simplify things a little bit like the Juncker plan and FC, and the basic idea is you have to be realistic that the EU budget is not going to grow especially after Brexit so then you're going to have to come up with different types of ideas of leveraging Of getting more bang for the buck or for 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 doing more with less and i I think that the financial instruments that the eib for instance over the years has offered um are the solution
2: now does that mean that the commission and the parliament are going to be engaged in a bit of political theater over the next two years because you do hear some people sometimes including Juncker himself, say, no, we can actually make a great leap forward. We can either do own resources, a new kind of uh, tax fundraising instrument, and, you know, that we should use this idea of Brexit to actually grow the budget. But you're saying, actually, we're not going to be able to do that.
0: Well, I, I think, you know, the
2: first budgetary negotiations I was involved with was during the Finnish
0: presidency when I was deputy Antici in 1999 and we were preparing Agenda 2000. Uh, I then looked at it again for 2007 to 2013, and then as Europe Minister 2014 2020. And the story is pretty much usually the same. The EU budget will be around 1% of GNI or GDP, however you. Uh, want to define it, compare that to the national budget's 25, even 30, even 35 percent of the GDP, and you realize that the redistributive value of the EU budget is limited. The next battle that you have is not the sum or or the amount, but where you actually allocate the money. That has been shifting over the years a little bit from the more traditional uh, agriculture and, 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 and cohesion towards things that promote growth and jobs and investments. Uh, that's the direction we'll see. And then the third question is, which instruments do you end up using? Uh, and now that this sort of Juncker plan came along and the EIB has been instrumental, obviously, in implementing it, I think that's the way in which we will go in the, fo- in, in, in the future, future. So I would say that the budget, number one, remains stable, but then we'll use more financial instruments, which will then, actually increase the total amount of money that we get in circulation in Europe.
2: Now, one of the big criticisms of the EU is that people find it hard to really picture it in reality, or they don't understand the direct impact it can have on their lives. And given you have so much national experience, can you walk us a little bit through the impact of the EU? So take, for example, this fund for strategic investments. Uh, You saw Finland go through those real years of crisis after the implosion of Nokia, the arrival of the financial crisis and so on. But then you also were involved in developing things like this fund for strategic investments. So what sort of impact does that money actually have on the ground and and, and do we measure it in great detail? How, how do we know that it works?
0: Yeah, you can measure it and uh, I'll try to you know simplify things because that way I'll keep it simple in my own head. As, as well. I mean, if if you look at the big picture for 2015 and 2016, the firepower of the EIB or the financing that we did, we've calculated that it did two things. One, it has increased uh, the EU's GDP by 2.3% all the way up to 2020. So that's enormous. If you look at the growth figures that we have this year, they hover around that. Now, obviously, that's over four or five years, but nevertheless... And the second thing it's done, it's basically created 2.2 million new jobs. So this is the big picture. Now, what has it done? Basically, the EIB comes into projects, which we call either market failures or an attempt to fill a market gap. So where money would not otherwise exist, we go in make an investment, give a guarantee, or give a loan, and that crowds in a lot of other private investors and companies. And when that happens, there's something we call leverage, a leverage effect. So, for instance, we finance about 80 billion euros a year, and that then you can take three or fourfold to get the total firepower. Now, what are the practical examples? You go uh, into almost any airport uh, in Europe, it will have been partially financed uh, by uh, the EIB. Or you look at our subsidiary, the European Investment Fund, EIF, they have been dealing with 1.5 million SMEs over the years. You go on a railway, that will have been financed by the EIB. You take the bridge between Denmark and Sweden, that was there. And then you take perhaps a slightly sadder but nevertheless example, the Euro tunnel. So, you know, we, we finance a lot of stuff and we do it in four areas. Number one is SMEs, number two is infrastructure, number three is innovation, and number four is climate and environment. So, we do a lot of good stuff and you look around and you'll probably see a, a project where the EIB has been involved.
2: Is there a natural ceiling to the sort of value add the AIB can have? Because I mean, if what you're saying is true, in theory, we could just keep throwing money via the EIB at all of our problems and they'd just go away. But I imagine there's a moment where you crowd out the private investment somehow and you you lose the added value.
0: Yeah, definitely. There is a natural ceiling and the natural ceiling actually starts from the fact that the bank needs to be credible. One of our strengths is that we are a AAA rated bank and we will be so for the foreseeable future and the reason is very simple, we're owned by the 28 member states. So if the markets are of the opinion that this bank is sound and solid and the markets see us going into a project, they will say, okay, this is a fairly safe bid, Uh, risks are minimal, we're going to go into that as well. Uh, And we of course don't have uh, eternal sources of money. We have what we call paid-in capital, which has been paid in by the member states. Then we basically have what we call callable capital, which is money that we can call upon from the member states if we get into trouble. And that is always a very careful balance. We are leveraged many fold and we just have to stay credible and that I think is our limit.
2: And how does the situation work with the UK's capital? So after Brexit, Mm -hmm. I imagine we're in a situation where it will take some time, but essentially they're calling all of that capital back. So that's going to affect your budget going into the future. How do you see that connected to the wider politics of the next long term EU budget and the fact that we've got a 2019 European election coming up. Like the backdrop to all of this is there's a big populist set of movements in Europe and you're going to have to, without being capital P political, sort of deal with less capital and and push those people aside. How are you going to do that?
0: Well, I mean, I'll rewind it a little bit and say that we did, I think, a, a very good agreement with... The United Kingdom financial settlement in December 7th uh, last year, 2017. Uh, And in that, we basically decided, of course, to pay back the paid-in capital to the United Kingdom, which is approximately 3.5 billion euros. We'll pay that back over 12 years, 300 million euros uh, per year. Uh, And then on the callable capital, we'll do something which we call a guarantee, to make sure that things work out in the long run. And I think this deal was quite painless for all involved. And and the United Kingdom, obviously, was very helpful in these negotiations as well. Now, reality, of course, is that we will have less money to invest uh, as the United Kingdom leaves uh, the European Union. You could take it just pro rata and and say that, okay, you know, we'll have less investments, but then again, we'll also have less population and we'll have less member states uh, in the EU. At the end of the day these things balance out and you must remember that the EIB is a rather flexible bank in the sense that during difficult times we are able to increase our firepower as we did for instance with the Juncker plan and then perhaps during less difficult times we're able to tone down a little bit and this is a continuous balance that we're looking for. But I think people will look at the EU's bank, the EIB, in a positive light, in the sense that if and when the grants and subsidies are not going to increase, we are going to have more financial instruments, and that will always you know, churn and give a positive effect to the economy.
2: Now, back on this theme of the EU being a little bit complex and confusing, what's something you learned, even as a big EU expert and nerd, when you turned up at the EIB?
0: Oh, I didn't realize that the EIB was the biggest multilateral bank in the world, that it had a balance of assets of almost 600 billion euros, that it had capital of 250 billion, and that it basically uh, provided financial instruments and loans and for, for about 80 billion euros a year. I didn't understand how actually powerful and big an impact it had and, and that's why i've said to our team over there hey why you know guys what what's what's going on here this is the best kept secret in europe
2: we do a lot of good stuff
0: you know we provide you've
2: ruined goods. it you've come on eu confidential now uh, everyone is gonna know, know about I, it.
0: everyone's gonna know that the EFB is actually really cool <laughs> uh, i've also learned very quickly that we've almost doubled in size uh, because of the the juncker plan um and i've learned that we are the bank of good news i mean uh, the EU institution that you know doesn't force you to do anything, doesn't regulate, it just basically provides you with finance and gets the real economy churning. So so I'm quite excited to be there. I, I didn't know that this existed and, and was as forceful as it is.
2: Now, maybe that does take me back to one question of capital P politics. I mean, you have really done all of the big jobs in your own country, Finland. You're now at the Bank of Good News. You have sat around that EU council table. If someone or a group of politicians approached you in the next year and said, would you consider being commission president or council president? Is that a conversation you're open to? Well, It's, it's always a
0: big hypothetical, isn't it? I, I think I'm probably one of the only guys who's, who's worked in every institution apart from the... A European Court of Justice. I've, I've done so. The Committee of the
2: Regents, Don't you?
0: And I haven't done that either. I must did an ECOSOC. So so yeah. And then the European Court of Justice. So okay. And I haven't worked in any of the agencies. Okay. So, so first Chief yeah.
2: Justice, then uh, Commission uh, President. Uh, okay. No, I've got
0: uh, I got that down. The nice thing is I, I have you know my background is in EU academia, in civil service, and in, in politics. And of course, I've been an MEP as well. I love all European jobs but to be quite honest I'm very settled and very happy to be a little bit under the radar now uh, at the be after having been for 4 years in the European parliament and then 8 years in government and certainly in finland I mean if someone was asked will i go back to national politics the answer is no uh, but european politics is always uh, an appealing affair mm-hmm. to me
2: and are you living out of a carry-on luggage case at the moment? Is it back and forth, Helsinki, Brussels, Frankfurt, that sort of agenda? Or are you going everywhere with the projects? So?
0: No, we go pretty much everywhere. But but I do commute. So the base and the family is still in Helsinki. Uh, and my gig at the EIB is, is two years. It's a two-year mandate to 2019. Uh, but we do a lot of roadshows. So, uh, you know, these past few two weeks have been basically Luxembourg, Strasbourg, Geneva, Helsinki, Stockholm,
2: Davos, Frankfurt, and now Brussels. So that's typical European, right? I feel tired just listening to it. Now, it's time for the big question, Alex. You are a bit of a triathlete. Now, I've done some triathlons myself, admittedly only ever Olympic distance, but you've actually done the Hawaii Ironman and some other major events. Now, so that everyone listening is clear, that means you swam one point five, 3.8 kilometers You cycled 180 kilometers, and then you ran a full marathon back to back. How many times did you do that, and why the hell did you do it? (laughs) I've done
0: an Ironman four times, and I like endurance sports. It's my way of basically staying alive and, and keeping up the energy levels. I mean, my thesis is that one hour of exercise gives you two hours of energy every day, and I found very quickly when I became an MEP and and a government minister that you had two ways of winding down or relaxing. One was to down a bottle of wine, which is wonderful. (laughs) The other one was to do that one hour of exercise and I've kind of opted for the latter and and haven't looked back since. Ironmen are things that you don't end up doing too often in your life. I do a lot of Olympic distance as well. And, and you know, I'm a, I'm a big guy, so just running that would, uh, you know, cause a lot of injury. But I, I, I like triathlons, and, and uh, I think we should have more triathlons here in Brussels.
2: And the practicalities of that you're from Finland, it's cold. It's dark for many months of the year. How on earth do you get in the miles in order to actually complete the races?
0: Ah, it's actually in the summer. It's much lighter than here, uh, and quite often warmer as well. I, you know, in the winter times, you do some cross-country skiing, which is great. Uh, you do some indoor cycling and also just normal cycling and you know, swimming pools. Yeah, we have them outdoors as well, but most of them are indoors. So it's not really a problem. I mean, as long as you find the time and put it in your calendar, I think you're, you're all set. Alex Stubb, thank you for joining
2: us on EU Confidential. Thank you. And now it's time to bring in our podcast panel, and it's a very special panel this week because I'm doing it from the village I grew up in, in the east coast of Australia. And Alva Finn and Lena Abaroos are doing it from the usual podcast studio in Brussels. So good morning, ladies.
3: Good morning and happy happy Valentine's Day.
2: Indeed, happy Valentine's Day. I, I got in twice this year, actually, because the time zone in Australia puts me 10 hours ahead. So I got to do Australian Valentines and Brussels Valentines. Mm -hmm. How good am I?
3: Lucky you. Lucky you. The modern world.
2: So why don't we dive into a couple of EU WTF moments? The one I really wanted to dive into is around this growing scandal or set of scandals around Oxfam, the leading non-government organisation that does a lot of very good work in developing countries and crisis hit areas of the world but is absolutely now engulfed in a scandal over the use of government money, the behaviour of its civil servants, and then in an unrelated but very comic tragic event, its international chairman is now arrested in a corruption probe in Guatemala. So I'm going to turn it over to the panel.
3: Yeah, I think, first of all, it's important to say what the sex scandal is, and it's that a very senior former official of Oxfam was allegedly using prostitutes, not just in one place. So it came out about Haiti. But actually, apparently, it turned out that they knew that he had already been using prostitutes in Chad, where he was working before. And then even though those allegations came out against him, they still moved him to Haiti. And it's not just him. It was other officials as well. But, I mean, this kind of behavior really... Then they
2: let him resign as well without really telling the world that it happened.
3: Exactly. And that kind of behavior, I think it's in a way, it's good that this is happening because the aid sector should not be immune from the kind of accountability that other sectors are. This isn't just happening in aid. We also know that there was a very big scandal around peacekeepers in Central African Republic recently. And that went all the way up to the top of of UN agencies. They actually knew about it. And there was a lot of hush hush. And I do think this culture of trying to keep things quiet so that you don't get defunded is a bit toxic. So I think going forward, all checks need to be in place. You can't, if there is a scandal or something happens, because it it isn't all Oxfam workers. Mm. They do great work, and I don't think they should be defunded as a result uh, of this, but they have to have everything in order. They had taken a lot of steps after this had happened, but it just didn't seem to be quick enough. And also letting him resign, it's morally reprehensible.
2: Now, Lena, a question I had for you, given how familiar you are with the EU funding world and the diplomatic world, is Oxfam receives around about 30 million euros of EU funding a year, almost as much as it gets from the UK government. And the British have been under a lot of pressure to, you know, basically crack down on Oxfam and figure out what's going on. And we haven't seen a lot of that pressure at the EU end yet. What do you think might happen there? And What do you know of as being the checks and balances that the EU has in place to make sure that its money is being well spent?
1: Well, it has to be, I mean, there should be some punishment. There should be some kind of a watchdog on this and something like the EU need to do. But at the end of the day, and knowing how the EU functions, they always think of the person or the the beneficiary from all these funds. So it's really just because of the behavior of some pathetic people. We can cut funds just at the receiver at the end. Diplomatically, the EU will not put itself, I think, in a question of we're, we give assistance, we take care of, of refugees, we take care of women, we take care of the vulnerable people across the world, and uh, lots of humanitarian aids are, are spent. I mean, the EU is one of the biggest funders and the biggest... Um, contributors to international crisis. So I think they should form a committee to investigate, to get real legal clarifications from Oxfam and from other NGOs, because I'm sure this is not only in Oxfam happening. And it's unfolding, this story. It's just like when the Me Too campaign was unfolded. I think that we will see a series of NGOs being under the spot. I don't think that the EU will really cut any funds, but Mm. certainly would need to change how they give their funds and to get really serious, some replies, legal replies from Oxfam and other NGOs that could be as well having these
2: Another angle I'd love to explore briefly is this idea of not just Oxfam, but Oxfam as a symbol of an aid industry, where at one level you want developmental organizations that have scale because then you can get some good quality administrators and make sure money is being spent properly, etc. And I just wonder if that is the right structure for all of these organizations to deliver us the best results or whether you know it's basically gotten so big that it's able to kind of self-justify and cover up things and, and whether that's the right way we want to be running and funding NGOs.
3: Hmm. I mean, I think that there is a problem with aid effectiveness all over the globe, and we need to do aid better. And I don't think that we can do that without big organisations like Oxfam, because they need to b- be coordinated. If we don't, co- and also now that we have the SDGs framework, which is the Sustainable Development Goals, you know, we should be coordinated across programmes, and that is really what the EU is trying to do more and more. Of course, there are now these like little micro aid organizations all around the world, but I do think the bigger ones they provide a very important role in coordinating how we get aid to beneficiaries. And from what my country is living, uh, Ryan and Alva,
1: we have 1.4 million refugees because of the Syrian crisis. And it is uh, beautiful to see the work of all these international NGOs, say it Save the Children, Oxfam, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, they are all over the camps. And they really help the international donors in how they give the aid and how th- there's a lot of work and I don't think the government or the EU or any governmental agency can really replace their work and replace their volunteers mm-hmm. and being there on the ground. So it's really a, a scandal but I, I do really hope as I said, not to really stop us from believing in the work and the mission and all the efforts that the NGOs, they do.
2: Well, now it's time for an EU thumbs up. I wanted to flag a new campaign in Brussels that is around supporting the rights of all residents in Brussels being able to vote in regional elections. If you've lived here for more than five years as a non-EU citizen or you've simply registered with the commune as an EU citizen, you're able to vote at the lower level local elections. But at the moment, you don't get to vote over a lot of the things that make your daily life good or bad. Things like the infrastructure, the public transport, the garbage collection. So... I want to support the One Brussels, One Vote campaign, but I wonder, are there arguments against allowing all of these low-tax-paying Eurocrats from participating in the franchise here in Brussels?
3: Well, I'm strongly against this idea that you have to, like, taxation for, for voting. Those people live here, and they use the services like everybody else does, and they should have a say in that. And also, they're working for the European Union, which is basically bettering, you know, the local context as well. So I think that anybody who lives in a place for long enough to be eligible to, should be able to vote. Well,
1: looking forward that. Ryan, you can, no? Now you have been here for 11 years. I can. (laughs) Well, good luck with that. I still have a long way to go.
2: Let's dip back down that EU roller coaster into a feud of the week and let's look at the debate around the Spitzenkandidaten. So if you're not familiar with that term, it basically is describing the process by which European political party groups select one candidate doesn't appear on a ballot paper anywhere, but the citizens are supposed to just be aware of this person and know about them. And that candidate is put forward as the European Commission president candidate from the party. And you're supposed to factor that in when you vote in the European elections and the party with the biggest number of seats in the European Parliament gets their candidate into the 13th floor of the Commission's headquarters, the Berlimont building. And essentially, national governments, wise figures, ordinary people, maybe two or three of them, have been fighting over whether that is actually a democratic, useful system or not, and whether it should be kept or abandoned for next year's European elections. What do you think, podcast panel members?
3: Yeah, I think that uh, there is a problem with it in that people don't know about it. It would be a little bit different if you know they were literally on the docket, but basically at the moment the EPP kind of just picks who it's going to be because they're the biggest party. So yeah, I don't think it's a perfect process. Uh, it's meant to be better than, for example, having the council do it because, but they're actually elected officials and they're elected by more people than uh, who elects the European Parliament. Mm. So I think there is, there's a bit of a grey area around how democratic and candidate is to me. Well, the whole objective is to make Europe more democratic, I
1: think, and this happened in 2014, and we have the president, and uh, I don't know, the commission is still being all the time criticized that it is undemocratic, undemocratic. Well, very good. So... Since we are electing and voting for our parliamentarians, why not as well in the country, the parties that they win, they have the candidates for the parliament, for the European parliament, and one candidate for the commission.
2: So who chooses the commissioners then?
1: The people, the citizens of Europe. You you choose, Ah. you vote for your MEP
3: and you vote Ah. for the commissioner. Okay. But you'd have to have a transnational list for the president of the commission. But
2: there's only one of them. Because
3: everybody would have to vote for one.
2: not really a list if it's one person.
3: But again, it means that you're never going to have a president who is from one of the smaller countries, basically. Well,
2: Eurovision, you know, small countries win sometimes.
3: Mm.
2: You know, we just need a glam rocker from a small country to get up there. I wonder whether the EU collectively knows whether it wants quality people or a democratic system. And they're not necessarily opposed. But I do think that the current Spitzenkandidat and Candidate system is maybe the least democratic of all, potentially, because basically you're guaranteeing that only About 1,000 people in Europe get to decide who the Commission President candidates are from the two leading parties. It's almost certainly going to be the EPP, as you said, Alva. So you're down to possibly 500 people choosing who the Commission President is going to be. And that is very different to 500 million people having the chance to vote for somebody. Yeah, you're right. There we are. We just killed a whole process. (laughs) And now it's time for my personal favourite part of the podcast, the next MEP of the Week selection. Two weeks ago, we pulled out some very strange and possibly unknown names out of a hat, and some of us went off and did some very useful research. Alva Finn, what did you find?
3: So I had the job of researching a French MEP called Marc Julot. He's from the République. Bliquin, uh, from the French Conservatives. And he is in the regional committee and then also in the subcommittee, the cult committee, so on culture and education. His whole thing...
2: Sounds very boring.
3: Well, actually, it's quite interesting. He's a special rapporteur on copyright reform in the cult committee in the digital era. So he's really kind of taking leadership on getting, you know, artists, etc., to have have copyright laws. But also he's really focused on the future of cohesion policy and EU funds, but very interestingly, I found out that he's also at the centre of the François Fillon fake job scandal. Here comes the exciting part. Yeah, exactly. He's he's basically an ally of François Fillon. He took over from him uh, in a role. And apparently, he is also allegedly gave money to Penelope Fillon for a job that um, it is alleged that she never did. So he is actually quite interesting. That's what I find out about him.
2: Well, I'm glad there was something interesting about that man in the end. Thank you. Alva now it's time to pick out new MEPs of the week so let's get the invisible and the infamous out of that box who wants to go first uh,
3: I'm going to go first one sec okay so I have a Spanish MEP oh god oh, this is so embarrassing Ju- Yoso Yura C.T. Abunzo no Abunz. he's from the uh, Nordic Green Left
2: anybody I
3: never know the greens. It's really like I know the the more high profile greens, but no, no, okay, not at all. He's from I've never even heard of this party EH Bildu.
2: Well, no, go on. Next, let's hope
1: somebody interesting, please. Okay, Um, I have always a date with the Danes (laughs) Rina (laughs) Ronja Kari. Um, She is from the Nordic Green Left. And oh. she's from Denmark. I
3: I don't
2: know her. No. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll pick one f- We'll pick one for you, Ryan. Ah, Ryan, I'm
1: picking one on your behalf.
2: And I've got Toon Kellam from the European People's Party of Estonia. Well, sorry, Toon. Okay. Alva, your turn again.
3: Just be someone I know. Uh, yes, I have heard of this guy before. Okay, so Thomas Mann is a German guy from the, e, from the Christian Democrat, the EPP. So, yeah, I have heard of him before. I've seen him in something before. I'll have to look into him to see exactly what he does. Do you know, sometimes you just recognize people from like maybe a meeting you've been to? Or on the bus like Ryan, remember? Yeah, or, or on a flight.
2: Lena, have you heard of Thomas Mann?
1: Unfortunately, not yet. But we'll, we'll research him for next week. OK. And now we have Eva Kali.
2: Ah, yes. I sat next to Ava at dinner once before.
1: Oh, not on the, on the bus this time. Very good, Ryan. <laughs> uh, she's from Greece and she is from the S&D group. So Ryan knows so her anyway. tell us, Ryan,
2: about the dinner with uh, MAP Eva. Eva is a former television journalist. Uh, she's quite young. I think she may have just turned 40 now. Uh, we sat together at the Politico 28 dinner in 2015, and we were on a failed date in Davos, where uh, the date itself didn't fail. We just failed to conduct it. And so we bump into each other at technology conferences every now and then. And she is a very passionate, very organised advocate, let's say, for a modern Greece.
3: Great. Well, Perfect. hopefully we can get her yeah, to speak to us.
2: No? Yeah. I predict that Eva will be falling over herself to join us on the podcast. Excellent.
3: Fantastic. Yeah. So we just wanted to say to you, Ryan, uh, congratulations on, on all the big things that are happening professionally for you.
1: Yeah, congratulations. And we are looking forward for a big bottle of champagne for our uh, lovely audience. Uh, Ryan has been appointed as the political editor At Politico, for Europe, we have to say that we will miss his uh, playbook, uh, Brussels playbook, which um, I think the best thing you can do in the morning with your coffee. But the good news, Ryan is going to stay at the EU Confidential and Alva and I will always be uh, excited about the day we come and record with Ryan. So Ryan... Congratulations, in Ooh. Arabic, Alf Mabruk, And uh, we wish you all the best and uh, all the juicy phone. stuff coming your way.
2: Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yes, I'm very um, excited to go and do that new job. And the podcast is going to go from strength to strength. I promise you all that. And my colleague, Florian Ada will do the Brussels Playbook. And he is an absolutely excellent reporter. And I think people will grow to love Florian when he takes over in March that's all we've got time for on this episode of eu confidential if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already please do we'd love to count you as a part of our community if you aren't already and a big shout out to the eu confidential team michelle stoddart andrew gray wei dong lin and antonio fernandez